Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Ralph from Roleplaying Public Radio, and uh, we're here at Gen Con 2015, and this is the case against fun, social critique, and roleplaying games, uh, because we hate fun here at our Roleplaying Public Radio. Uh, no, not kidding. Um, we're we're going to be talking about why fun is sort of a useless metric when it comes to evaluating games, uh, because it's such a subjective uh, term to uh, everyone. There's uh, I also talk about the eight types of fun. Uh, um, because there are different ways you can evaluate games based on how fun they are by if you actually think about what they do, um, what kind of fun you actually like, um, and uh, a lot of different things. So um, just to give a little background on us, uh, we both do a podcast called Roleplaying Public Radio, uh, which uh, most of you have probably heard. Um, if you haven't, come up here at the end of the thing uh, panel and take one of these cards. It'll give you the address to go to the uh, website because we're recording this for the panel, so you can listen to it later. Uh, and also, at the end of the panel, if you have a ticket, please bring it up here and drop it off. Uh, we'd appreciate it. And, of course, uh, I'm Ross Payton. Uh, I'm the co-host of Roleplaying Public Radio. I do uh, also publish and write RPGs. Like, I've done Base Raiders, uh, which is a superhero RPG now available for sale at the uh, Art Dream booth, 709. Buy my book, buy my book. Um, a new adventure for it is out called Boiling Point. Um, and then here's Caleb. Uh, he can introduce himself. Hi, I'm Caleb. Uh, I'm also on RPPR. Um, I've written a book of horror scenarios called No Security, Horror Scenarios in the Great Depression. Um, and then I've recently, in this con, I have a uh, campaign book out for the game Better Angels called No Soul Left Behind, available at the Arc Dream booth. Uh, I've also done quite a bit of freelancing for uh, games like Eclipse Face and uh, other games for Arc Dream and things of that nature. So... Yeah, when I propose this panel, I, I mainly propose it because I, I, I have a writing and creative I have a creative writing background and in the workshop model. And there is what, what people who are aware of the workshop model uh, have, they refer to as the flow problem. So flow is a terrible word to use when talking about literature of any kind. All it does is advertise to the room that you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so if you give, if you're critiquing someone's story, it's like I don't think it flowed. Like, all right, there's a paragraph on page six now. Did I fix it? Like, it doesn't tell them where the problem is, what the problem is, how to fix the problem. It's just a generalized term. And also, if you've ever been in public school, flow is probably the term you used if you didn't do the assigned reading. Timmy, what did you think of the story? Uh, I like how it flowed. <laughs> Like it's it's like it, it's a term that signifies nothing when you have all these terms of craft. Like you can use like imagery, dialogue, verisimilitude, uh, character motivation, character credibility. All of these things p- point to specific places on a page that I go f- change words and make it better. So that's my critique against fun. If you're a game designer, you are creatively creating something, and if you're play testing it. You are seeking that exact same workshop feedback. But it was fun or it was not fun are equally useless terms. Mm -hmm. And there are much better ways to express those ideas, but oftentimes since game design is kind of a, a, well, not kind of, it is a very new industry, um, people haven't invested in that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of people use it, uh, like... In review, the way you think of it is in reviews, uh, a lot of people will critique something based on whether whether they like some element in it. Like, oh, I like tanks, so I like this movie because there's tanks in it. You know, um, I like killing orcs, so I like this game despite its other problems. Or I hate this game because it doesn't have the thing that I like in it, or it has something I hate in it. Oh, it presents 
Uh, women is actually people. I hate that game, you know. Uh, so uh, yeah, we're we're gonna have to get into that aspect of it. Um, <laughs> but what I, what I should be clear is I'm not making a case for an objective review because it's not. Uh, your opinion is still subjective. I'm making a case for a practical review or a practical criticism because your proclivities on the type of fun you like is still entirely subjective. It is still entirely opinion based. You are not somehow the grand adjudicator of taste if you learn better vocabulary to replace fun. However, there's a difference between I like it or I don't like it and I like it and I don't like it and here's why. And using words other than fun is great for the here's why. So, um, uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with the eight types of fun. <laughs> Great. Useful panel. Um, so the eight types of fun came out of video game design largely, but it is pretty useful for game design in general. And it's a way of codifying it. So uh, the Angry DM has a pretty good article on it. Uh, Extra Credits has done a number of YouTube videos explaining it, uh, which will probably no doubt be more entertaining than me because I am not an adorable cartoon that talks fast. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, but uh, there, there are eight types of fun. So um, when you're critiquing a game about whether you like it or not, it's useful to, A, know what type of fun you find most interesting, B, be able to delineate between what type of fun the game is actually doing, and then C, saying if if this is well done and not just for me, or is it doing what it needs to do for that type of fun? Uh, it's basically if you want to think of the go us three questions: oh, what is it doing? Uh, it, you know, uh, how well does it does it? Is it worth doing? This is a tool for adjudicating that. Uh, if you want to get down to the brass tacks. So um, the first type of fun is sensory pleasure. So things just engage the senses. Uh, my example is video games are often pretty high on sensory pleasure, especially nowadays with DualShock controllers. The player map out is good. You get these tactile senses. They look super pretty. They have amazing sounds, uh, things of that nature. In tabletop gaming, I get to roll a bunch of dice. I get to all these little colorful figures on this beautifully made map, and I'm moving them around. Handouts, yes. That's sensory fun. And that is a great type of fun if you're into that. Uh, but if you roll into a sensory fun game and that's not what you're looking for, you might find the priorities off. So can can you give an example? Are, are you a sensory fun person, Ross? Um, I think it... In some ways, especially like if I'm looking at a game, uh, the production value of the book itself matters. Uh, certainly, there are RPGs that I bought because hey, look, book pretty. Um, so, uh, like as like a lot of the uh, Fantasy Flight, Warhammer 40k books, they have amazing art, very lush, uh, and it's certainly a good looking at. I think also a lot of LARPs uh, really focus on this as well uh, with the the costuming and. Uh, this sort of vis- and then there's the visceral fun of hitting your friends with foam weapons so um, that's for me though it's not as important um, it's actually sometimes sensory pleasure can sort of take away I know some DMs like using music in games but that often becomes detract you know uh, distracting so a lot of tabletop games you want you don't you kind of want a minimalist experience so the players can focus on the theater of the mind um, yeah yeah or if it, the game has a lot of grid-heavy combat and that's not what your players are seeking, uh, that, like, um, in certain games, I know that I am not a D20 person because I am not a sensory pleasure seeker. Uh, and it's not that I, you know, don't 
it's not like I think it's bad wrong fun that people do that, but I find the combats where we're like, we gotta get the figurines out and we gotta move this many spaces and we gotta do it. I find it just grinds the story to a halt. And that's not a bad thing that does that if you're going for the sensory pleasure because it's much better than my indie story games at doing that. It's just not the direction I tend to go. So if I were to critique a game like that, I, I, I could or could not say, this isn't my type of fun, but then I would go on as like, Oh, I think you get another piece in here, or this would be a more interesting way to move the pieces, or you should decorate the piece this way, or you know that kind of stuff. Um, so the other type of fun is fantasy. The second one, uh, so fantasy. You uh, and the word most gamers use for this is immersion. So you want to lose yourself in your character. You want to be as involved in the in the world as possible, um, and you want the world to be as fantastic as possible. You really want to go in there. So. Um, so, if you'll notice, there's a huge overlap. There's a bunch of sensory pleasure games, like D&D, which founded our hobby and exists well into today, uh, that also has a very high fantasy factor. I know where every city is. I know every important person in that city. I know what the economic models of that city are. I know where the hot dog stands at. I know the grid space of the hot dog span. It takes up this many square meters. Like, that is heavy, heavy fantasy fun and that is you know great type so yeah yeah, uh, yeah I mean a lot of D&D uh, campaigns have gotten like there's the there's a set called the um, a box set called the Wilderlands it was released uh, a while ago in the D20 era and it was originally like and it's like an entire campaign like a continent and like presented on a series of hex maps and each hex has a number to it and you look up the number in a book very thick book and you can find out what's going on in every individual hex uh, on this map. Uh, so it's just, uh, just hundreds of towns and everything. And like, oh, here's a little village, and it's normal, except in the fountain, town fountain, there's a, uh, a ring of three wishes. And, like, the players, there's no clue. If some player just randomly searches every single fountain, they'll find that ring of three wishes eventually. Uh, and, oh, on this island, there's, a, you know, an army of skeletons waiting to take over the land. And nobody knows about this. So if the players just randomly crash on that island or go there, they have a skeleton army to deal with. And uh, it's very, you know, uh, immersive. Yeah, there are people uh, who have been playing D&D campaigns for, like, Three or four years, like campaigns. No, decades are ones. Yeah, yeah, that have like compendiums of lore, uh, rivaling you know religious texts and the histories of churches and stuff like that. And um, yeah, that's that's pure fantasy fun. You you want to just dive in and not come out. Um, What seems like it might be related to that, but is slightly different, is narrative fun. So a person who is a narrativist takes uh, experience in a well-told story. So, for example, um, I think Call of Cthulhu is a good example of narrativist fun because you're actually actively seeking to die and go insane. Um, like Because in a tragic story that is about fatalism, which is an established genre with established story beats, I would much rather not be playing and have died a death that serves the story beat than anything else. So, Well, it's not that Call of Cthulhu characters are suicidal. It's that the players... Aren't mo- like in D and D? You're car- you're motivated to like become a level twenty badass. In Call of Cthulhu, you're motivated to find out what the real story is to solve the mystery, regardless of the personal cost. And in D and D, if your character dies, you don't go yay, yeah. which is often happens in a Cthulhu game. <laughs> uh, so that's narrative fun. Um, another good example of what makes narrative fun, since I am so heavy narrative, is that um, sometimes the logistics of a table really bother narrative is fun. So I hate hate 
hate when we're in the middle of a campaign or a session and somebody doesn't come the next week when we pick it back up. Because where the hell did that character go? And yeah, your kid needs medicine to live. Whatever. Get to the game table and get back in. Because like, it just drives me nuts that... Tom's character is standing heroically <laughs> in the background like a mannequin saying and doing nothing for the remainder of the climax of the story because we didn't finish last week. He's working out. He has to justify that raising the strength. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of our friends uh, left a play test because he went on vacation for like a month and a half. Yeah. And his, uh, when I asked him where he was at, he just said, I was working out <laughs> for a month and a half. <laughs> and like as a narrator, I'm just like grinding my teeth when I hear that. Uh, yeah. So, if you're a narrativist, you probably like fantasy as well, but you're, you're okay coming out of the fantasy if that makes a better story. Because sometimes stories are tragic, sometimes characters don't make a lot of sense considering the setting anymore. You're, you're trying to tell a, a useful narrative. There's also one interesting point about the narrative um, that you raised. Some people will like particular settings more or less because of the narrative in play. Like, uh, you, you, you mentioned that you, like, aren't really interested in playing in established settings. Like, uh, like in like I know a lot of people want to run a, uh, a game in an established, like, a video game universe. Let's do a game in Fallout or let, in Assassin's Creed or something like that. Um, and your point is that, like, you're not the... We're not the big narrative guy. Like, how can we be the hero of, you know, Link's over there saving Zelda? Who cares about what ha- what else happens in Hyrule, you know? Yeah, and that's just a trope in any fiction. Like, you, you pay attention to the most interesting and the most salient things because readers are sadists. Like, yeah. no one wants to read a short story about us having a panel on a lovely Saturday afternoon. <laughs> if a rabid puma runs in the door, we are the most interesting people in America. <laughs> how did the puma get in? What, what strain was it infected with? Who got out? Who lived? And, like, that's the... the I mean, Can that's... close the door? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just... Yeah, I'm being immersed too much. <laughs> and, gone and, too and, far. like, when you think about it from an ethical or a moral perspective, that's kind of psychotic and insane how, how much we want to see characters suffer and how much... The, but that's the thing. Like, if I'm in the Firefly universe and the Firefly crew's off doing amazing things and redefining the universe and fighting the man... And I'm over here, I don't know, at the hot dog stand on a planet. Like, why would anyone want to care about me? Even if I'm remotely important to it, I'm still ancillary. Or maybe I do the fan fiction thing and I interact with Mal and I'm actually better than Mal. And I'm I'm the real captain in my character. And then I'm just, the whole thing is like, really? <laughs> so I have very little interest in playing in a setting because I feel like I don't have enough room to play in. Like, I want to be the most interesting person because I don't want the story to be about uninteresting people. Uh, and I don't feel like I can be if you have this established canon that has to be followed. Uh, but I am not the arbiter of taste. Uh, that's just what's for me. And if I read a game that was set in an established setting and I was critiquing that, I wouldn't be like, established settings are stupid, shut up. Because, like, how is that constructive? Um, so another thing is challenge. Uh, so if you have played Dark Souls, you are a challenge person. If you have played Bloodborne, the video game, right. you are a challenge person. Like, um a lot of D&D players are really motivated by this, especially. That's why they love the grid combat even more than the sensory pleasure. It's like, I have this tactical problem, 
how can I use my, my level four, you know, my one character with my three buddies, how can we defeat all these orcs? And that's very fascinating. I know I've, like, I've played in D&D games where nobody was engaged on that level, and combat sucked. And then I played in games where everybody knew, actually paid attention to the rules, and knew how to use teamwork, and it was, like, crazy, and I thought I was in a foreign land, or in a dream, and, like, it was, like, really fun. Like, okay, you do this, and you do this, and then we get the synergy bonus, and we can do this to this guy. I'm like, oh, holy crap! We don't have to spend three Three hours doing a fight. We can take out the it, yeah. So it can it, like if you like XCOM too. Like XCOM would be another good challenge. Uh, and and with game design currently, challenged gamers don't have to be competitive. There are tons of cooperative games with rules for like hard mode and, and things like that to you know increasingly challenge your skills and make you better at playing the game and strategize and critical thinking. Uh, and, and so challenge is a bit. Is a big I mean, that's, it is kind of the original motivation for RPGs. Like D anD D, it was like you always started at level one. If your character let you campaign for a year, everyone is level ten. You die and you can't get resurrected. You start over at level one, and you start adventuring with your level ten buddies, and they're like, "Aha, suck it, noob!" And you know, and you just had to you had to deal with it, so players could brag about like, "I survived this tournament, I survived this campaign, I did this." You know, it meant something, and that's sort of like one of the big re- motivations of the uh, old school Renaissance, I think. Yeah. Um, so, but at the same time, if you have a mix and match, and you have a heavy challenge player with somebody who's heavy in something else. Yeah. That's going to cause group problems sometimes if it goes PvP. Or if the person's like, well, of course it didn't come back to save you. I would have to drop my sword. Yeah. <laughs> no, I need that. So, sorry you drowned, I guess. It's but, a plus you know, four. Roll man. again. Yeah, yeah, it's a plea. It's Vorpal, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Get your priorities straight. What if a Like, Puma? yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's, uh, that yeah. is going to be a disconnect between a challenge player and somebody who has a different focus. Uh, so, kind of related to betraying your friends to win. Uh, so uh, Diplomacy is a great example for yeah. that. I'm all about challenge, and I don't care if we ever speak again, because <laughs> that is what that game is about. Um, but on the opposite end of that, uh, some people just play for fellowship. And I think everybody plays for fellowship to some degree, but some people just play for fellowship. Guy who doesn't do his homework. Oh, yeah, I know I was supposed to roll characters. Hey, bread pizza! Like, it just rolls in. He's, it's just the night he meets or she meets with the friends. That is a fellowship gamer. It just matters that you're there. So uh, I play the I play Destiny a lot, which is by many metrics a terrible video game. <laughs> and I don't know why I'm playing it. The story is nonsensical. It, it is so poorly written. Peter Dinklage sounds like he's reading a phone book. It's just the worst. And I play it like three or four times a week because... All my friends have that game, and that's the time I talk to my friends. And that's my fellowship hit. I don't play it. I just call it Destiny Chores. We talk while we play Destiny. I was like, uh, uh, let me shoot it. Uh, but, like, we, we're talking, and that's my fellowship hit. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a big... Fe- if you take your fun too seriously... Uh, again, as a narrativist, fellowship gaming, if you're too heavy on that, can kind of yeah. tweak me out. Because I'm like... What's your backstory? Uh, I'm a world-class forger, and I'm great at sniping. Anyway, let's go. And I'm just like, what? You're Japanese. You don't even have... Ga- no! Your character's like a teenager, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who our friend Tom, he rolled a 17-year-old uh, who basically never left his home. He lived with his mom. Yeah. He was the 
in, in the game rules, it classifies your skill ratings. He was the world's greatest forger in history. <laughs> and also and also the greatest sniper who ever lived. And he had literally nothing else. He didn't have enough computer skills to operate his phone. He he had dexterity skills that would make it difficult to tie his shoes. Like, if it wasn't making a passport or getting a headshot, he had no capability of doing anything. And he didn't care, because, oh, we're here, let's talk. Oh, I brought food. And I'm just like, that makes no sense! That's a terrible, terrible character! Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was the game master for that. I'm like, I at this point... I just want the game to play. I don't care at this point. <laughs> like you sit off in the corner and do your thing. Yeah, fine, whatever. I did. I, I just, I just want to get the game going. <laughs> like, uh, so there. Yeah, I was. So uh, yeah, you all like fellowship, but some are going to like it more than other. And games that focus on fellowship more than that are going to be games that are like more party games, things like that. So like we didn't play test this at all. Uh, Cards Against Humanity. Cards Against Humanity. That is not about winning. That is not about challenge. That is not about narrative. That is about hanging out with your friends and having a structure which enables that. Uh, So that's a fellowship game. Um, And it is much better to say this is a party game, a fellowship game, than this is fun or not fun. Uh, Discovery? So Uh, examples of that? uh, Yeah, Discovery is, you know, learning new things. Uh, Certainly... I think one great example for us, if you listen to RPPR, uh, we, every year we meet up with Adam Scott Glancy from Pagan Publishing, and he has run a lot of Call of Cthulhu games, and he, uh, up until this year actually, this year will be different, uh, we, they've all been set in the era of World War One, and I feel like I deserve college credit for playing in these games, because I've learned so much about the intricacies of World War One warfare, um, you know, like how many, uh, like how a U-boat works and how um, terrible it was to fight in the Mount Alpine Mountains during World War One, and uh, so you learn a lot through these sort of historical-based games. Um, but and, and he's yeah. not joking. We've literally had games where the first two and a half hours before anyone gets a character sheet. Our historical lectures. It was 90 minutes. Uh, our, our historical lectures of World War One, a list of films and books we should go read. Yeah. And he is very good at his job in that, and that is a type of fun we like. So we're just like, tell me more yeah. about Siberia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally interesting. Uh, but other people would be like just bashing their head against... <laughs> The, the table because you know if they wanted to go to school they'd have done that they don't want to play a game for that but the, the wrong thing to say is because it's focused on that kind of stuff and that kind of detail it would be like this isn't a game that's not what games do games should be fun that's ridiculous it's a ridiculous statement you'd be like I don't care for this type of fun may you go do it uh, uh, well, there's also another type of discovery, yeah. too, which isn't, like, learning, like, facts and information things. It's also, like, uh, discovering things about yourself, like, discovering things, like, you know, uh, a lot of the games, Caleb and I both run, involve moral dilemmas and making difficult choices. And so that's, actually, as a game master, that's one of my primary motivations is to discover what are the players going to do now when I present these sort of, like, from our previous panel, all kinds of ethical problems. I throw a trolley problem at them, which which passes are they going to go down? Um, and certainly, like in our Red Markets campaign, yeah. we chose poorly many times. Uh, uh, and it can also be discovery for the whole group, not just the players and the GM. Yeah. So I love a I love a good random roll table. 
like uh, one thing, uh, yeah, I, like you if discover we things hit right, the dice and some yeah. weird combination of things happens. Or remember when we rolled characters for uh, what was it, um, Gamma World? Oh yeah, and we had all team cockroach. Yes, like one was a giant cockroach, one was a sentient swarm of cockroach, one was a <laughs> robo cockroach. Uh, like because everybody hit seven on the second character sheet, so we had like uh, like this bizarre like team cockroach of every possible stripe. And field like, and I just I love that, and that was no plan. I we discovered that through the randomization. Of it. And you discover things about your other players too, which I like. Like I didn't know, like one of the players in our group, David. Um, I didn't know that he was such a cold-blooded killer. Uh, <laughs> he in our uh, no so left behind playtest campaign was like, okay, there's a crack house. Uh, you kind of want to take it over as your safe house for your villains. Uh, and so we're scoping them out. There's, you know, they're all teenagers. And it's just like a street gang. And Dave was like, "I go climb up the building. Oh, you see the guy? All right, I shoot him with my sniper rifle. And like, it's a, it's a teenager that you've just murdered in cold blood, and you're the school librarian. Like, why did you do that? And he's like, "What? He was a back? Well, I don't know. And, and that's not the only time he's done that. Like, so, there are other times. So as the campaign goes on, I'm just like, okay, he came from a bad home. He was doing that to support his family. So his family goes. Through increasingly terrible things as a result of that action and uh, since it's a superhero game uh, David's character has to deal with that in his regular mundane life and only he is the one he knows he's responsible for that and as the campaign goes on uh, one of the characters uh, that suffer from the brother begins to suspect and seek revenge uh, because she learns that the librarian guy is responsible for his brother's death and this is the only time I've been legitimately chilled at a table we played for it was like I don't know, it must have been 15, 16 sessions. Uh, a year of our life went into this campaign. And until it, to the very end, he denied all responsibility in public and he rationalized the decision every time, no matter what I threw at him. He never phased, he never did it, it was always the right choice. And it was like, I, I literally got a chill down my side. It was like, and I don't think David's a monstrous person, oh, no. he's one of the nice persons, but, but that character <laughs> is like my idea of the devil. <laughs> like, <laughs> He like he was just the most morally stat like there's just nothing but white noise going on in his soul like and it just it was just ugh, like cold sweat and I would have never have gotten that with anything I wrote I had to discover David yeah. make that character choice I was surprised by that uh, so the the surprise element. Uh, of it are the learning something new element that's discovery fun um, there's also expression so that means that if you are the person who prefers to GM over play it is highly likely that you are more into expression as a form of fun uh, that you want to participate in the story and uh, more recent modern role playing techniques uh, that have GMless games uh, are games fiasco would, be. fiasco would be a good one um, the Dresden Files mechanic of building your own city, defining all that kind of fate in general, where your own personal personality is your stat. You don't pick from a list. You you just get through for your sheer force aspects, yeah. of aspects and attitude. Um, those are all heavily expressionist games that are really focused on uh, you all being participants. You are all expressing your own creative uh, faculties through the game. Yeah. Um. I think a lot of, like expression like the RPPR group I know we everyone's really into that because we and not so much like into challenge for example like if well some players I know like they're like yeah no what I like killing things with grid comet uh, and that I like that too but 
like in the the D and D New World campaign that we ran for the podcast, the the, the typical the the joke became that like you see monsters in the hallway of the dungeon. Oh, we go talk to them and make a deal. Like I don't want to fight them. I want to like negotiate with them. And so they and then like oh the, that pot oh that NPC Ross uh, the GM you know me I had to use a pirate voice to do like let's go talk to him some more you know and so like it became that who has the funniest voice that's our friend um, <laughs> and uh, the, the players love just role playing shooting the breeze with these guys uh, oh the Gripply are innocent frog like people that have minds like they're just oh we will kill everyone to protect them we will there is no empire we will not burn to the ground if they are threatened in the least um uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, and, and um, that often that stuff is in the cre- the creative space, the negative space in the game design that doesn't tell you explicitly how to do it. Like, yeah. uh, so the the common examples D and D, you go, it's all about going in a hole, killing the stuff, taking its gold. Your motivations are are uh, somewhat legendarily or maybe infamously undefined for doing that in a lot of versions of D and D and a lot of things. Uh, so you get murder hoboism. Are you get uh, the sort of economic constraints of torchbearer? Are you get alignment systems, and, and you get people developing all these interesting ways to codify in the rules a reason for that to exist in the story, uh, and that's what a lot of expression is like. I want to add to it. I want to do my own thing. Um, also, new game modes that uh, a lot of new games have different modes, like this rule set for this type, this rule set. Knights Black type. Agent would be a good example. Uh, Wild Talents has that as yeah. well, uh, and that is again make it your own. And by, well, in, yeah. to explain more, like in Night's Black Agent, which is spot human spies versus vampires, you can play it like a Jason Bourne movie with lots of crazy action and parkour and uh, stuff like that, where you're you know fighting vampires and being a badass. Or you could play it as a Tinker Tailor soldier spy, uh, where you don't know who you can trust and who you can't trust. And it's about paranoia and suspicion and uh, mind games. And uh, and then in Wild Talents, it's like you want to play. Do you want to be in Frank Miller comic, or do you want to be, like, in, you know, Golden Age, aha, I beat you up, and, you know, like, how family-friendly are you going to be, you know, uh, in a sense? So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, th- and that's something, you know, and the last one is really hard to find. Um, it's called Submission. I like the extra credits name, uh, Abdignation. Because if you say you're I'm in, if you say I'm into submission fun, you want to make sure you're not misunderstood about that. Uh, and abdignation is a really big word; it makes you sound fancy. So yeah. I think it's better. I think uh, it's an RPG set in some uh, versions of D and D. Secondary character. Uh, so if you're into or, if you're into submission, you're into abdignation. Uh, it, it, that's the hardest to explain. You want to turn your brain off. The fun is not doing other things. Uh, my destiny fun, other than fellowship, is pure abdignation fun. Shoot it again. We've played this level 80 times. Yeah. If you ever played a I'm video, not thinking about what i got to do to work. I'm not thinking about bills. Right. I'm not thinking about this. Shut it down. Abdignation. If you ever played a video game to have mindless fun, that's... that. Like, I play Payday 2 to, like, just, ah, I'm gonna shoot cops, drop banks. All right, whatever. I don't care. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's not similar to Fellowship, because most people, but just come for the money, just, like, kind of this... Uh, there, I would say, yeah, there is some overlap, uh, but it's about, you know, fellowship, I think, is, again, friendship, and, like, submission could be, you know, just, you're too stressed to do anything, so you don't take the lead, you're just kind of chilling out. Right? And these are ideological extremes. Like, yeah. if anybody was entirely one type of fun, I, I would be willing to bet 
everyone that knew them would think there's something wrong. Yeah. Like, there's something seriously wrong with that person. So it's you're never just after one type, but you have types you gravitate towards more or not. Uh, and, and, yeah, but, like, if you play solitaire, you're not there for fellowship, but... My brain's not worried about anything else. I'm worried about solitaire. You're playing Minesweeper at work. <laughs> you're, you're on the Minesweeper. The brain's dedicated from Minesweeper now. It's not worried about other stuff. Yeah. So I've actually given this one a lot of thought since we talked about this back in the day. But I've actually, I consider myself fairly engaged a lot of the time, but I, I think I've found what this is. Like, my working definition of abnegation in a role-playing game is when you can get so into what someone else is doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know that other guy that when it's his scene, you're actually just able to sit back and kind of go on cruise control and yeah. just watch it happen. Yeah, it's not when you're wa- you're so bored you take out your cell phone and play with it. It's uh, it's when you're like, yeah, I, I want to see what happens in the story. I mean, that, that, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, every time Sean said anything about explosives. Yeah, he was really excited about that. Yeah. Yeah, it, mindless is not the right word, but it's not your typical mind state where you're pulled in so many directions. You could also argue it's supreme focus to the uh, to the elimination of a. Uh, I don't want to call it meditation. Like <laughs> you're not a monk for playing Minesweeper, but it is uh, a similar. You're you're devoting way more processing power to one single action than you normally have to do. Uh, yes. Back to what he said. Um, it sounds like the, the it almost takes me maybe it takes me back to the sitting around the campfire ghost stories. Yeah. He's the one talking about that's that character's that's the guy's ghost story. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's a, a way to get swept in, up into that and have fun being entertained yeah. by that other person. Yeah. And the wrong thing to do if you're playing someone's game is to be like, this game isn't fun. You just click this button or you do this thing over and over and over and over again. And I hate it. You're just saying like this. This game seems to be heavily dependent on abdignation. Is that what you want to do? Or uh, it's not for me. Or uh, you could focus them even harder on the task by doing this. Uh, you know, that is useful rather than it's fun or it's not fun. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So um, those eight types of fun are really useful um, for critiquing games. They're really useful if you're going to design games because that's your metric. You decide what type of fun you're going after and you go for that because. Uh, Heisinger, uh, if we want to get real deep about it, and Homo Ludens talks about that the uh, his his thesis is that the peculiarity of the human animal is that uh, more so than other animals in the animal kingdom, even though they are very is that we are focused on play, and that is an evolutionary conceit, and we get to be top of the food chain because we play harder with more intricate rules than other animals. But he says that play is a universal factor in the universe. All things play uh, that are sentient. Uh, your cat is not just running around being adorable on the video. It thinks it's hunting something in your carpet. Uh, like, that is a play, and it is training for something the cat would do in real life. And uh, Heisinger's argument is that play is what defines human as a result of that. So as a result of not just thinking about, oh, I shouldn't do my game because it's fun, uh, you you can be somewhat liberated by learning a, a more sophisticated vocabulary for it because, A, you can realize games don't have to be fun. I've played many games that are fantastic that are not fun at all. Uh, has anybody played Spec Ops The Line? Oh, yeah. That game is miserable. I was so sad and depressed the entire time, and it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in terms of like artistic achievement. Uh, there are art games. Uh, I can't remember the name of the game, but there was this performance artist that would introduce uh, board games into uh, these European uh, museums, and one of the games was you're putting cubes 
in train cars and sending train cards away. And it's all about doing cubes and train cards. And you find out midway through that you're working at the rail yard for a Holocaust camp. And then once you find out midway through, the whole game's about like, okay, you could quit the game and then someone else is going to put more cubes in the train car. Or you could keep doing your task and just try and mess it up just enough so you don't get fired and lose, but you're the least possible effective and save the most amount of people. Is that the one that they only play, like, these great museums and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. And that's an art game, and holy God, is that not fun? (laughs) But it doesn't need to be, because it's art. Like, it it makes a point. It's a game. It has rules. There's play. But it has a very different type of fun because it's very, it's very much about discovery. It, it's very much about uh, it's very much about expression and the responsibility of expression. Uh, and it says a lot of things about the types of fun, even though it is sort of uh, miserable and awful. And and that is very different than a game is like would be marketed that way. Like, hey, you get to be part of the Holocaust on the box. <laughs> it's like that would be freaky and exploitative. The point is being shocked by it. The point is feeling that and approaching that moral conundrum from a way that doesn't just make it statistics and dead pages in a history book, but kind of makes it real for you. And so so liberating in that you're going to be a better designer because you're aiming for a certain point. And then also liberating in the fact that you realize that maybe my game doesn't need to be fun as in everyone's laughing and having fun at the table all the time. Maybe I need to make a different kind of point. Maybe I need to go for a different type of fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, you can't obviously, no game can, like, hit all eight metrics perfectly. Um, because some of them are, like, submission or abdication is a little kind of the opposite of, like, challenge or uh, expression, you know, it's pass- being passive versus active. So you have to think about what, I mean, you as a designer, I think R- the RPG industry, you, a good rule of thumb is only design games that you want to play. You know, don't try to, like, look at these metrics and try to design something that you think would be be marketable or would get get better sales but like what I mean look at what types of things you find interesting are you really fascinated with grid combat and D&D and trying to like have the lowest level party take out the most number the most difficult monsters possible you know can you kill a dragon with a peasant you know that kind of thing uh, in that case some some sort of tactical combat game that's really focused on that would be something more up your alley you know uh, as opposed to like a, an expression focused game like Fiasco where it's all about like this Coen Brothers essay where people are involved in schemes and scams and like fucking everything up and just ruining everyone's lives around them in a uh, very fun but very kind of uh, very structured sort of way, a very specific kind of way. Um, yeah, so, yeah, and you're going to make a better game if you're doing the fun that you're most familiar with. So if I'm doing yeah. a sensory pleasure game, I'm just going to make a bad game. Like, I, I know that's not my... Like, I'm going to start producing the game... The miniatures cost how much to make? <laughs> Shut it down. Like that—that that would be my whole process because I yeah. don't know the importance of that. I would—I would definitely deprioritize I mean, that for myself. Yeah. So it would not be a good. It would not achieve that type of fun well because I don't know exactly what I'm aiming for, and that's not my gaming experience. Yeah, I think a lot of miniatures games are sensory pleasure. I mean, how many people like buy Warhammer stuff just to paint? You know, it's like the pleasure, like haha, look at this beautiful <laughs> miniature. All right, have you fought them in terms? God no, I don't want to ruin that paint. You know, like I don't want people to actually touch it. Uh, you know, like get away from it. Uh, so, 
Uh, I, I mean, like I saw one miniature game here, uh, Kingdom Death, that had like really crazy detailed miniatures, but like it's three hundred bucks and like it's a minis game. I don't think I'm ever going to play that, but like wow, that they put a lot of work into that. So. Yeah, my dad was the exact same way. They're all over my house for miniatures, and he painted miniatures full time. So he started off D and D like before I was ever born, uh, and then never moved out. He never found another group because my dad is pure sensory pleasure and pure expression. All right, I got the miniature. Boy, that looks cool. Let me put it together in an intricate model. Let me decide the color scheme. Let me paint it painstakingly in my specialized painting station. And I don't need you around. I don't need fellowship. Go away. I don't need narrative. I want to paint my miniatures. Like, so my house has all these little orcs and goblins and warriors painted all over it in little shelves that he builds around the house. And he just does that as his hobby. Uh, I wouldn't call it a game, but I think games that would go for sensory pleasure and expression like that would be something that he would... Yeah. more interesting because he didn't need anybody around to to see him do that because that was his abdignation like he is yeah. focused on man that tiny foot needs to be blue yeah. and that's his whole thing Sorry. and not worrying about like me messing up at school or breaking things in the house and stuff like that that's his break um, yeah I kind of want to like make sure we have some time for some questions I mean like what are you guys wanting to are you guys wanting to run your own games or design your own games? I mean, are you just trying to figure out what we meant by the social critique of fun? Um, or, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been putting together a game, and I just want to sort of get, like, you know, the where is all this fun yeah. coming from? What is it? Obviously, you know, The Case Against Fun is a great a great yeah. title. It was very interesting. Um, yeah. You're just like, you know, because as you said, like, everyone's like, oh, games have to be fun, especially yeah. when, like, there's... A lot of marketing with big company you know we market our games are fun you know and you hear that and you're like okay well you know obviously they're not just gonna be like yeah whatever screw fun mic drop yeah. we're out yeah i mean you could have that be a performance piece, well, like, performance piece i mean yeah if you look at the marketing of like really well polished games they often like kind of hint at what kind of fun they're doing like you know defeat hordes of orcs with your you know badass heroes or you know um, in Fiasco, B, it's a Coen Brothers movie. You're in it, you know. Go nuts, you know. Uh, it's a really fun. So you can kind of, kind of see the line. They don't explicitly say this is a five on the abdignation scale, you know, uh, out of eleven points. Uh, and and yeah, so I'll, I'll be honest with what inspired the title and, and really the the thing. So like, um, I think that most people when they use fun, it is a totally harmless misuse of application. Like when I go to the mechanic and I say belt, I mean holding up my pants. When the mechanic says belt, he means something very different than me. I am not the mechanic. I have no training in that. It's not like I am saying belt because I hate the mechanic or, or want to profess some political position. It's just the word that we use. And if you've played Monopoly with your folks and Scrabble once or twice, fun is perfectly fine. Uh, if you're not going to other games or designing other games or playtesting half-finished games. And, it's, and there's no moral implication to it. But what worries me is that, uh, considering all the stuff that's been going on on the Internet and stuff lately, uh, it, it, in a very small minority of people, it's not an totally innocent, totally, uh, totally based in ignorance uh, misuse of a term or use of a term that is less than vague. It's code language. And I hate it on the Internet when I say... This game is stupid. Game should be fun. When it actually means game should be more misogynistic or more racist or more this or more that. Like dismissing something that is ostensibly by any definition in the world a game. Objectively, definitely a game. 
because you politically disagree with it and wiping off the dangers and the implications of that political disagreement by just saying, oh, no, it's got nothing to do with my personal belief, nothing to do with my prejudice, nothing at all that we could have a debate or a discussion about that might challenge my worldview. It just does not meet the dictionary definition of fun. Uh, and that is code language. That, does, that is the use of fun that does not mean fun. And it's not only not useful, it's hurtful and dismissive. Uh, so I'll be honest, like, that's where I come from. Because in addition to being, like, innocently misused or innocently not useful, there is a very, very small minority, but a very vocal minority on the Internet, especially with stuff in the past two years, that have used that code word to dismiss arguments that could be made in other ways and more respectfully or just to push noxious political agendas uh so yeah yeah. there are some examples like especially like in the video game industry uh you see that argument made for games that are uh meant to like to go for the discovery kind of fun in the sense like you discover something about yourself or you you're confronted with something that makes you like reevaluate your perspective uh i noticed a lot of reviews against like the game gone uh going home or gone home yeah 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 uh, like this is to be fun it shouldn't be like this this isn't even a game uh, because it's sort of it's a very particular kind of game where you're a, a college student who goes home and your your parents are gone for the evening and you explore the house and try and figure out what happened it is a game because you have to figure out this mystery it's a, not like a challenging game at all you know uh, but it, it tells a story it tells a story with good beats but people didn't like it because of the subtext of that particular story like uh, for a spoiler, it, it involves like uh, uh, gay issues, and like you know, the, this person you go home, you discover something about you know your sister, uh, you know, uh, is in a, a relationship with another girl at school, and you're like, uh, and so it, it's a very kind of innocuous thing, but like people are like, how dare you put this you know drama in this story? How dare you? This is a gay. This isn't a game. This shouldn't even be on Steam. This shouldn't be a you know. And they're very angry at this being this kind of very innocuous story. Like so probably uh, a lot of people that would actually like that type of game if it had content that they enjoyed and wouldn't criticize it too. Yeah. They wouldn't mind a story that has sort of like a deep narrative where you learn things as you go, as long as it wasn't content that they thought pushed. Yeah. If it didn't. If it didn't. It, thought, yeah. You know. Like Spec Ops the Line didn't get that kind of criticism because it was out soldiers and it was going with that whole like it had sort of a heart of darkness kind of theme, but it was like you get you still get to shoot people, so like you get to shoot people who are foreign, you know. So like that was enough. And uh, and, and what I'm willing to say is that a lot of those gone home comments, I bet a lot of those people also played Shadow of the Colossus and just rode around on their horse for hours. Yeah. <laughs> like because the horse is awesome, and man, look at that, it's so pretty, it's like a painting. And then you play Gone Home, and it's like this game isn't fun, and you have like four racial slurs in the third paragraph, and you're like. Ah. Pretty sure you didn't mean fun. Uh, and so, like, if, if this comment, which I'm not sure exists, but if there's a comment on Gone Home, is like, this game is heavily narrativist, I'm concerned there are too many narrative games in the market, and it's going to harm my ability to play games that institute challenge or abdignation or fantasy in the way that I prefer. I could have, I have no disagreement with that statement whatsoever. That is a very specific, very subjective, but very respectful 
criticism of Gone Home based on one's personal proclivity. Fun is a code word that hides a bunch of really noxious stuff for some people like that. Yeah. Uh, and I again, I want to emphasize the overwhelming majority of gamers, and I think especially tabletop gamers, have no problem with this. Uh, but it is just a vocal minority and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, yeah. Oh. Thank you. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Great, okay. great, great podcast. Uh, yeah. So, uh, other questions? Yeah. I just wanted to thank you because this helps me understand why I can't play games with my dad. Okay. <laughs> because we have different kinds of fun, and I didn't have a way to. So why does Munchkin make him angry? <laughs> Munchkin, it's because of the game design. Like, the problem with, uh, yeah, Munchkin is a very good abdignation game if you're just in Fellowship. Oh, it's a great Fellowship game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in, for, in terms of a challenge, it's the, 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 it's so randomized. It's based on what cards you get, and there are so many cards that prevent someone from actually winning. Orange you know, like, yeah, everyone, well, once everyone gets a plus nine, if you hold on to those cards, they're like, in the fight, you like screw you. No, you don't win. Okay, well now you don't win, and then you don't win, and then it's till it's like an attrition. It takes too long as a game. So like, I could see that, and certainly if you take the challenge too seriously, like you know. And I don't know your dad, but expectation plays a big role in it. So like Munchkin has like pretty high production values and nice art and stuff like that. So you typically associate it with games of that quality, which might not be so far into abdication and randomization yeah. and, and challenge and lack of challenge like that. So. Um, I teach, a, I teach a class called Tabletop Game Design uh, for, as a summer school credit in my high school, and like the first thing I do is not allow them to say fun. And we learn the eight terms so we can make our own games and like, focus on it. But like, what I'll find is like people who hate Munchkin, I'm just like, all right, uh, so you don't like just plain fellowship games, you know, something like, oh, um, let's play We Didn't Play Test This at All. Which is like two turns, and then I win because I have a banana. It's just like <laughs> surrealist and insane. Or play like meow, not meow, where you get a cat card or a not cat card, and you just stare at each other and you go meow and try and fuel the person. It's like a deception game. Those games are so not resource intensive, so easy to grasp on the cover that I find people that are typically not into fellowship games uh, are sometimes really into those games because they know what they're getting into. Uh, so it it could not work, but uh, and I don't know your father, but um, sometimes with me it, it's a matter of like, does the game set them up for that type of fun and do they know what they're getting into? Because uh, a lot of those people can feel like they're sitting down for a game of chess and you're like, let's move the pieces wherever! And they, they're disappointed because they expected a different experience. So. Uh, what else? Melissa? I just want to make a comment. Um, I've only been gaming for about three years and the way I got introduced to it was someone handed me a list of these eight types of fun and said, which ones do you like? And then chose the games to introduce me to based on those types of fun. And oh, wow. And then when I was introducing new people, because you know, when you're trying to grow the people that you game with, introducing them this way and then choosing which games based on I like sensory stuff, okay, let's do this first, um, and then kind of bringing in new things, that was really helpful. Okay, so for the recorder, uh, in case uh, that doesn't pick up, um, she was introduced to gaming by someone who get, showed her a list of the eight types of gaming and tried to uh, have her figure out what types of fun uh, she liked the most, and that really, and then like played games based on those types of fun. 
And that's like, wow, that's a really great idea. Uh, if you have people you want to get into gaming, I would suggest to do this. Like, if you Google eight types of fun, you should find uh, the article. A dozen different articles. Uh, yeah, we're looking at the one on angrydm.com. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's a link there. So, um, yeah, that's a, yeah, help your, if you're having these problems, like with your dad or whatever, uh, try and figure it out. If you have a person who's really into challenge and someone who's really into narrative, you know, you're going to have problems unless you can find some place in the middle to me um and in that class i did have uh, it's a class so i had limited resources but i did have time for differentiation so after i kind of established what the kids liked types of fun i'd point them towards in free playtime games that are going to indicate that give them ideas for mechanics for their own game that they like that type of fun but i'd make them play everything because sometimes like i needed to control a classroom and get them all focused on one activity but the rule i had because i'm somewhat of a sadist is that if you hated a game and you wanted to quit i would only allow it if you critiqued the game and explained to me why and the thing I would not allow is like this game is fun and stupid. I'm like, all right, next turn. Uh, and so like we played this uh, we played this licensed board game from the Hunger Games movie oh, yeah, that yeah. I mistakenly got you for a gift one year. Sorry. Uh, totally unbalanced, poorly produced pieces. Uh, like uh, very unclear about his expectations. Very unclear in the expectations of the game because there's no fighting. It's all about political maneuvering before you go fight, and once you go fight, the game ends. And the kids were like. And so not very good at communicating the expectations, uh, not very good at immersing people in the narrative of the world or the fantasy of the world because you were basically just chatting behind closed doors and, and all that kind of stuff. And the kids hated it. They hated every second of it. And I'm just like, okay, we can quit as soon as you describe why you get to quit. And they're all just like, it's not fun. I'm like, no, that's not it. So, like, they're like leafing through the vocabulary booklets to study up on, like, <laughs> figure out what type of fun and how to express it. And then, and then they did, but that's the kind of thing. And as they did that, when they got free time time, if they came to a game that wasn't fun, it didn't cause fights. It didn't cause arguments between them because they had negative social skills. They understood what was part of the game and they could they could separate in their mind is it a good game or not or do I like it or not which are not the same thing it's a good game for people who like that type of game or it's a bad game because it doesn't achieve the goal that those type of games have and they could separate that and for a teenager that is huge because you remember when you're like when a teen you're like oh you listen to that band we can't be friends like you know you remember when you're like that and that's like a really important skill to learn uh, and, and stuff like that. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bill. Speaking of fights and arguments, uh, <laughs> so I think it bears mentioning that like there are a lot of games that you can like depending on who you are, you can play in entirely different ways. Which is Caleb, why you and I don't play. We didn't play test this at all because for you it's you know kind of a super casual application kind of thing. And for me, it's like, oh, I did class in symbolic logic once. I can reduce this game to computer code. Yeah, when you and Thad got in a 30-minute argument on my Friday night about we didn't play test at all, I wanted to hit you with a chair. All right, when we stopped playing the game for 30 minutes so you could talk about symbolic logic and break out your whiteboards, yeah. I wanted to hit you with a chair. You know, well, you know there's another example of that. Um, Going back to Monopoly, uh, the person who made Monopoly actually meant it as a critique of capitalism, and it was supposed to be a game about discovery. Like, hey, look, capitalism is ter terrible unless you're the really, really rich guy. 
And then when people got it, uh, Parker Brothers bought it and started producing, people started playing it for the challenge or for the fellowship. And, like, the whole thing about, like, hey, capitalism, look at, like, you know, uh, was lost. So sometimes as a game designer, you, you think your game will be about this type of fun, and then, like, people will take it in an entirely different way. So, yeah. I, I, I often use Monopoly as an example of a terrible game uh, before I realized that and did some yeah. research on the founder, and now I kind of love it because... And capitalism isn't fun. Good job. Like, you get to play Monopoly. It goes on forever. You hate people you're supposed to love. You argue. You just want it to end and to do anything else. Like, man, good job. Like, that game does that super well. And now they just reskin it every year. It's the exact same thing with a new coat of paint, but you pay 40 bucks for it again. Yes! Capitalism. That game says what it means means to say like yeah dead on want to quit capitalism you first have to provide a critique of it (laughs) yeah pretty much (laughs) oh we did that i'm like we're playing monopoly kids (laughs) uh but that was later we got like two hours we got like two minutes in there there was like no out get the vocab books out yeah uh yeah yeah. now with credit cards but um, (laughs) with millions of dollars but i i I happen to to have problems with my games sometimes where like the end just I think it just has as you guys said there's way too many parts of fun that I'm trying to cram into a game and I think it can suffer that way too like if you try to fit it all in and and having that good balance I think is something that now that I know of and try to look up I think that's something I'm going to try to cater to like one half instead of going all the way going ham on another yeah like D&D tries to do that I think they definitely try to do like well we have tactical combat so for the challenge people you can do this and this and then there's all these like but you can still role play yeah no don't worry Will. Uh, it's about storytelling but it's also about combat it's also about killing things no it's about you know being a hero it's about killing things it's about, uh, it's yeah. about hanging with your friends it's about this yeah. and you keep adding on trying to please everyone and yeah. everyone has their own taste but the, the games that do better are the ones that know what they want to do like Fate is very much a narrative and expression focused game and where you're like here's your character and your personality can change the world and then there's uh um, you know, games like Call of Duty, which are all about like the narrative and like what the hell is going on, and then there are games that are like totally tactical combat, like Phoenix Command, uh, which is you know let's figure out the windage of this gun. Uh, yeah, and then there's engineering, like the combination of types. So, like it's not like once you learn the types, you're done. Yeah, it's because like so think about the combination of narrative expression and and narrative uh, challenge. So for instance, let's say we play a really long, huge campaign, and in the narrative, because I want my character to be some sort of mastermind. I engineer something to diffuse the situation. What's the GM's choice with everybody else? What if everybody else is in challenge? So if it's narrative expression, I'm okay with anti-climax if I've engineered a parlor scene. (laughs) You were beaten before you arrived because I contributed that to the story and that's part of my character story. But on the challenge metric and the narrative metric, narratively it's anticlimactic. And for a climax, it's not very challenging. So if the parlor scene is just like, oh, I did all this beforehand, like, does a, oh, yeah, you stop the villain, but then he enters his second form and becomes a big monster you fight. Like, where do you put that priority? How are you priority? But you can't do them all at the same time. Uh, You can only do one or two or three at at, at any given time, and your your priorities are going to shift and focus. Yeah. Uh, So thank you all for coming. We really appreciate it. Uh, Have a good rest of the day. Uh, Please. uh, uh, if you have tickets, tickets please give them to us if and you want swag. So. Buy his book, buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.